but to Philippians chapter 2. This evening we're going to take up one of the uh, most majestic passages in the Scripture. We're looking at this again. Every time I open up the Scriptures, I thank God for my salvation that I have in Jesus Christ. I thank Him for the blessed opportunity that I have to be a member of the Lord's Church. And then I also thank Him that I was able to grow up in a Christian home. And I've received a lot of opportunities for studying the Word of God that many people don't have. And as I think about the Christian home that I grew up in, I'm also thankful that the Lord led me into Christianity that teaches that the focal point of God's creation, the focal point of everything that God did in the world is not me, but rather... I believe that everything that God did in the world was for the cause of Jesus Christ and the creation of the world, Jesus being instrumental in the creation of the world, that everything was for his glory. And I'm glad that the Holy Scriptures do teach us that I was made and you were made for one purpose, and that is to glorify Jesus Christ. And it's with that in mind that we consider the passage that we have before us tonight. It's one of the most wonderful parts of God's Word. And in Philippians, it's Paul's intent for the reader to understand that having a right relationship with Jesus Christ and knowing exactly who he is and his prominence in all things will lead us into a church that is considerate, caring, affectionate, and also a unified church. If we believe that God's purpose in the world was primarily the individual, then that will naturally lead us to selfishness and pride. And that was the original lie that Satan gave in the Garden of Eden. He told Adam that if you eat of the tree, then you'll be just like God. And the emphasis in that was on you. And so, because of what Adam did, we now have a world that's in sin and conflict, And everybody thinks the way that Adam originally thought, and that is, I do want to be God. Not just to be like God, that Satan's intent was to tell him, you can be God. Now, some say that theology is to be man-centered rather than God-centered. And that's the idea that has permeated religious thought down through the ages. And very sadly, it has influenced Baptist thinking to some degree. And so, people... Churches no longer teach the exceeding sinfulness of men and that men must have the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in order to come to Christ. And rather, they've made it a man-centered religion. But seeing man first is really the antithesis of what Paul speaks of in the book of Philippians, especially in chapter 2, because man first will always lead us into divisiveness. There will always be division, and that's because there are many men. If man is first and there are many men, then there's going to be a lot of division. But if there is God first, there is only one God, and by virtue of putting everything into one God and seeing him the focus of all things, that will naturally lead us into unity. And so when Paul speaks about unity, he, he brings up the greatest example that he can think of, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of unity. And so he goes to that source, and he speaks about the humiliation of Christ and Christ being the ultimate example for our humility. And he says that when we have the mind of Christ and not the mind of men, we will have unity. So there's one Lord and there's one Christ, and the only way for us to be unified is to be unified in him. But Paul goes further here, 
Not only does he speak about Christ's humility, his descension uh, to, the, uh, to the earth, condescension to the place of man, but also he speaks of Christ's exaltation. And the willingness to be humbled is the reason for Christ's greatest exaltation. That promoted his greatest glory. So this evening I want to begin reading once again in Philippians chapter 2 at verse number 5, uh, verses 6 through 8. We're going to start at 5, but verses 6 through 8 are the downward steps of the humiliation of Christ. That's the descent. And our text verses are verses 9 through 11, which show the ascent of Christ to the greatest exaltation. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're going to begin reading it in Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great portion of Scripture. Lord, we just pray that you might open our eyes to truth tonight and help us really to to see the exalted Christ and to understand what it means to confess him as Lord. Bless in this service tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This evening is part number two of the message I began two weeks ago entitled, The Ascent of the Son of Man. And in the first part of this message and, and the messages that, a couple of messages that were before it, I talked about Christ stepping off the throne of glory. He's the eternal God who became man and not a prestigious man, not a rich man, but Jesus became the lowliest of men. The Bible says that he became a servant and then he even went lower as he went down to the death of the cross. But we come to verse number 9 and there we have the word wherefore. And wherefore introduces a change. And that is because Christ was willing to be humbled, God has exalted him. He was willing to become a servant. And because Christ was willing to bend his knees to wash the feet of others, one of these days every knee shall bow before him. And because Christ did not seek to have men rush to him because he had earthly fame, But rather, he came as a lowliest of men. The Bible says that now he has given a name that is above every other name. What's the lesson that Paul is trying to teach us in this part of the Scripture? Well, the lesson is that the only way that we can be exalted is the first to be humbled. Now, it seems terribly ironic for us to say that really the way to reach the plane of God is not to go upward. You can't go upward to reach God. You first have to go downward. So the way up to God is to go down. And let's go back here just for a moment and review just a couple of things in part number one of the message. I said it's been two weeks, and maybe you don't remember what we've talked about. Well, just very briefly, uh, we talked about, number one, the exaltation of Christ. And that's really the whole theme that's considered here in verses 9 through 11. As I said, verses 6 through 8 are the downward steps of Christ. And verses 9 through 11 is the culmination of the steps upward. Christ's lowest point 
was when he came to the death of the cross. And of course, death is the end. You can't go any further than death. I mean, you couldn't go any lower than that. That's the last step, last step for man. And Christ became, become, uh, had become a man, and going to the death of the cross, then the only place that he could go from there is to go upward. And so with a demonstration of power and glory, Jesus was resurrected from the grave. He went upward when he came out of that tomb. Now, the power of Christ had been displayed in many different ways during his life at various times, but at best we could say that his power was veiled. Christ did not use his full power as, the, as man here on earth, but he humbled himself and he didn't use everything, every attribute that God had given, not all the power that God gave. I mean, uh, at, at times he healed one leper, or he healed two lepers, he healed ten lepers at once, he healed one blind man or two blind men, when in fact Jesus could have healed hundreds if he had desired to do that. He raised three people from the dead. And yet in the book of Jude we read that when Jesus comes back again, it won't be just three people that came back from the dead, but there are millions that will come with him when he comes in glory. And so he continued then his upward exaltation in the ascension. Forty days he walked upon the earth after the resurrection, and then he ascended to the throne of God. And as he is there now, he's in a new ministry. He has become our intercessor. He is the great high priest who bridges the gap that exists between man and God. And because Jesus came to this earth, he experienced everything that man experienced. He was tempted in all points like we are tempted. So he's able to to bridge that gap between man and God, and he becomes the perfect representative for man to God. But not only does he have that that side of it that he became a man, but of course he was also God. He has this, this union between God and man in one body. And so when he ascended back to heaven, he he is the God-man exalted. And so he knows the side of God as well in this. And by being our intercessor, he's able to bring us to the heavenly Father because we could not come any other way. We're sinful creatures. We can't come into the presence of God. We're only accepted on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And so Christ has come to his greatest prominence because of experience. That's the experience of being a man. And he's a high priest with an unchangeable priesthood. And that could not have been possible if he did not come as a man. And the second thing that we talked about in that message is the coronation of Christ. He's crowned with supremacy and with sovereignty. He's been given the name Lord. And that's the highest name that can be given. Because Lord speaks of the right to reign. But Lord is also indicative of the inherent right of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is not a power to reign that's been granted to him by any other authority. It implies in the name Lord that he has self-authority. He is autonomous in that authority. He's supreme in himself. And so he hasn't been granted authority by some greater being, not even God the Father, because God is a trinity. But Jesus Christ receives his power and authority inherently. It's in him. Jehovah God says in Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. So it's utterly foolish to think that Jesus Christ could be a created being and still be named Lord because that name is in itself a name of exclusive autonomy. 
Now that's really, those terms are redundant when you say exclusive autonomy, but you have to emphasize that for some people because they do foolishly claim that Jesus can be Lord and yet not be the only Lord. Christ is crowned as Lord. He is the only Lord. Now you and I, we recognize that. We're saved. We believe that. But this is not an appellation that's given to Christ simply for self-satisfaction as if the Godhead has just now come to realize that. I mean, it would be sublimely ridiculous to think that Jesus is called Lord just for his own benefit. But he's called Lord because one day all will have to confess that. A-double-L, all will have to confess it. All beings will confess that he is Lord. Now that comes next then in our outline tonight. And it is the ascent of Christ, and that is the confession of Christ. He is not declared Lord just by the Godhead, or if that is a reaffirmation for angels that are in heaven with him so they would understand more clearly that Jesus is truly Lord. As I said, that would be practically meaningless for us. I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't mean a thing to us at all to say that Jesus is Lord and he's proclaimed that in heaven, but no one else thinks so. Paul here tells us, All created beings will declare him as Lord. So he delineates then who these beings are. He does that in verses 10 and 11. He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So who is it that will confess the name of Christ? Well, first of all, he says, it's those that are in heaven. And who are in heaven? That'd be the saints and the angels. Now, obviously, when the translators of the King James Version supplied the word things in this text, that they didn't mean inanimate objects. They meant beings, all beings. And and first, all beings in heaven will confess the name of Christ. Now, let's start then with the angels. There are holy angels that are unique, individual creations of God. They were created for God's glory. And remarkably enough, the scriptures also teach that angels were created for our benefit. They were created as ministering spirits. But here, as Paul talks about angels, he's not talking about ministering spirits. He's not talking about something that's been given for our benefit, but rather the attention is directed entirely towards Christ. I believe that uh, the Bible teaches that angels are somewhat bewildered by the attention that God gives to man. I mean, Peter says that the angels desire to look into this whole thing about the gospel of Christ and the redemption of man. And that means that they desire to have an understanding of of why God did this. It's a mystery to them why God should love us and, and why God in his justice and his mercy and his grace connected that to the salvation of sinners. Angels have never experienced anything like that. There is no such thing as redemption for angels. So they don't understand salvation as we understand it. They desire to look into it, the Word of God says. But whether they know all about this or whether they fully understand what that means, it does not stop them confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has the perfect right to do with his creatures whatever he chooses to do. And so God has created he created angels, and the, uh, the purpose of, of those angels is to attend the throne of God. And it seems like even in the Bible it points out that there are special angels that were created just for that purpose, to attend just the throne of God. But here we're talking about all angels, 
they're going to be among this throng that worships and confesses the lordship of Christ. John writes in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The numbers of angels that are in heaven who confess the name of Christ is innumerable, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But it's not just angels that are in heaven who confess him. There are also vast numbers of saints that are already in heaven. I mean, these are people that have died and they believed in Jesus Christ. There in that verse that we read in Revelation uh, chapter 5, we have the word elders. And the elders that are seen in that throng around the throne of God are representative of men in all ages who have trusted Christ. So, not only angels, but those saints in heaven worship him. Now, when I say saints, I know that all of you uh, clearly recognize that I'm not talking about someone who's been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, pity the Roman Catholics because they only have a few saints. God has millions upon millions of saints. Saints are believers, and many of them are already in heaven. They've been worshiping, and they've been confessing Christ for many, many years. So all of heaven, Paul says, all of heaven is going to turn its attention to Jesus Christ and confess that he is Lord. Then he comes up with another category here. Second, he talks about things on the earth. And those on the earth are the saints and sinners. Saints and sinners are on earth as well, and they recognize and confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, some of the saints, of course, are not yet in heaven. Contrary, again, to what Roman Catholicism teaches, not all the saints are in heaven. We're not in heaven yet, and the Bible calls us saints. When Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, he uh, said to them, He's writing the letter, and he addresses all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi. Well, all the saints that are upon the earth will confess Jesus as Lord. That seems to be self-evident, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like we ought to know this, that all the saints that are on the earth, all saved people, will confess him as Lord, and yet there is a lot of confusion about this. And that's because there are people who preach and teach that saving faith does not necessarily include submission to Christ as Lord. There's some people who believe that saving faith is just a matter simply of confessing Jesus as the Savior. I mean, it's acknowledging, yes, Jesus died for my sins, I believe that, but I'm not quite sure if I'm ready yet to acknowledge him as the one who is to rule my life. Now, that's the position of many of our Baptist brethren who send people out soul winning on Saturdays and come back with reports of a hundred souls that are saved on a Saturday morning. You know, I love this example, or maybe I hate it, depends on how you look at it, but I can't help but think back to that time when we had a, a college singing group about eight or nine years ago who came to our church. They were from a college in, in uh, the Midwestern part of the country, and uh, they'd been on tour for one weekend when they came to visit us, and they came up and they made a report that during that one weekend, they had won 1,200 souls to Jesus. You know, it's possible to claim that thousands of people are saved. I mean, you can get people to admit to something. 
But if those same people do not have a demonstration of saving faith that Christ is their Lord, that he has made a radical change inwardly that redirects the course of their life, if that is not evident, then that person has not expressed true saving faith. You cannot separate saving faith from Christ's lordship. And when you do that, you're mistaken. Now, I want you to keep your finger here in the book of Philippians, and let's turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 10. And here we're going to read Paul's definitive words on the subject of saving faith and about Christ's lordship. This is in Romans chapter 10. In Philippians, he, he tells us that things on the earth will confess Christ as Lord, and that includes unmistakably, of course, everybody who's saved. Now, look at Romans 10, and we're starting at verse number 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Listen, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now let's think about that for just a minute. Why would Paul say in Philippians that though that those that are on earth that are now saved will be made to confess that Jesus is Lord because they haven't already done so. Now, do you think that he means that there are saved people on earth, that they're in the very same class as lost people because they have not yet confessed Jesus as their Lord? Now, I think that there's a huge difference between compulsive confession and voluntary confession. Those who have been saved will voluntarily confess Christ as Lord, and if they don't, then they're not saved. Now, can you imagine that Jesus would come to this earth and that he would put his foot on the necks of his own people and say to them, you confessed me as Savior, and now you must confess me as Lord. Saving faith already includes an admission of Christ as Lord because that's the purpose of Christ coming into the world. He came to redeem a people for his name. And... He came to receive a people unto himself who would acknowledge him as the Lord. I mean, it's not as if Christ would come into the world and say, I'm going to set up my kingdom, but I'm not going to have anybody in that kingdom. There's nobody there that's going to confess that I'm the ruler of this kingdom. That's, that's totally ridiculous. And so when a person says that Jesus is Lord, he's not just saying that I believe Jesus is deity. It has to go beyond that because the Bible says that the devil has no trouble confessing that Jesus is deity. The devils know that. They never said anything to Jesus, refuted the idea that he was actually the Son of God. They never said that you aren't deity. But what they did do, they rebelled against his authority. They would not accept him as Lord. And so, would it be plausible to think that a person could have saving faith simply by saying that Jesus is deity and not say that Jesus is my sovereign? That doesn't make sense. But that is the nonsense theology of many Baptist people today. Now, thankfully, nobody here, I hope, the saints on earth will confess him as Lord, and in that confession, they already recognize him. I mean, when they come to him in saving faith, they've already recognized this fact 
And they're not going to have to be forced into submission to admit that he's Lord. Now, I will admit that there are many Christian people who have to be reminded of it from time to time. We live as though many times that Jesus is not the Lord, but we have confessed him as Lord when we receive him in salvation or we're not saved. So the saints on earth will confess him as Lord. But we've already implied, and Paul has already said, that men on earth, all men on earth, will confess him as Lord. Now, I don't mean that all people upon the earth will be saved, but they will be forced to admit his sovereignty. Now, you remember a moment ago I said, well, it's a ridiculous notion that Christ would come and put his neck on the feet of his own people, save people who have not yet confessed him as Lord, and yet that is exactly what the Bible says he will do to those who haven't trusted him as Savior. He will come and he will put them under his feet. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And we talked about that in our Corinthian study. That it was the custom back in the Bible times that when a conquering king took over a territory that he would take the leaders of that country that he conquered, he would bring the kings out and he would make them bow down before him and then he would put his foot on their, on their neck and that would be a symbol that they must subject to him, that he's the one who's in authority. Now that's exactly what happened, if you remember, and we talked about it in the Corinthian study, uh, about Joshua when those five kings of Canaan were confederate and tried to defeat Israel when they were ready to take over the land of Canaan. That five kings got together and they resisted the Israelites and fought against them and Joshua conquered them. And when he conquered them, he made a demonstration of what Christ or what God would do to all of Israel's enemies. Let me read that to you. It's in Joshua chapter 10. And it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, these are the ones that fought against him, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. That's what will happen to our enemies. Now, of course we know that we can't take vengeance now. It's not our place to take vengeance now. Jesus says in Matthew 5, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. God's not going to let us have vengeance now because that's not our job. The right time and the right place, God will put all enemies under his feet. But there's an interesting thing that we read in the Word of God about those who were martyred during the tribulation period. And there's a scene in the book of Revelation where all these people that have been martyred during the revelation are asking God for vengeance. And here's what it says in Revelation chapter 6. And when he had opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? God will bring that vengeance at the right time. And I don't think that any of these people that we're talking about here that are forced to bow the knee to Christ will confess him as Lord because they are saved. It's already too late for them. And here's the thing that we ought to be, I think, very much aware of. That there are many people 
right here in our own state of California who mock the name of Jesus Christ and they thumb their noses at his law. It goes on every day. God is going to have vengeance on baby killers and on judges that promote immoral lifestyles. Now, God has already made judgment on that in the past. And you would think that Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, surely that's enough to show us that we ought to stay away from these things and and that that, that ought not to be a part of our society. But man wants to be his own God. Go back to the Garden of Eden and say, there it is again. Man wants to be his own God. And so he doesn't think about what God says for him to do. Instead, he goes and he eats of the tree and he ignores what God's word says. And God says, I'm going to judge them for that. One day, they will all bow and confess that he's Lord. Well, we still have one other group that will confess him. All beings, as I said, will confess him as Lord. And so that also includes, as Paul says, those under the earth. Now, who are these? Well, these are demons and, again, sinners. In Revelation chapter 20, the Scripture says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. One of God's last acts before this whole scene of the world and everything closes out is that God is going to cast Satan into the lake of fire forever. Satan is going to be judged. Now, that's not a judgment to determine, well, will he repent of his sins and will he turn around and do what's right? No, it's not for that because there is no redemption for Satan. There's no redemption for any fallen angel. The very moment that they lifted their hands against God or lifted their thoughts or whatever they did against God, at that very moment, their their doom was sealed. They will be in the everlasting fires of heaven. In fact, the Bible teaches that there are some of those angels that... At the very time that Satan rebelled, they were cast into hell right at that time. Now, many of them are still free, and and they're they're the demons that roam this earth and inflict pain and suffering upon God's people and fight against us. But some of those angels went into hell. God put them in hell and chained them there at the very moment that they resisted and went against God. Jude says in verse number 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness, under the judgment of the great day. Now, I promise you that those angels that have been in hell all of this time, all of the time since, since Satan fell, they are not right now praising God. I mean, they're not thankful for anything that God has done. They're not confessing him as Lord now because, you know, they realize that they they did the wrong thing. Those angels are struggling to get free even though they can't. Now, there's an amazing thing that the Word of God says about those angels, and that is that at, at, at one particular time during the tribulation period, those angels that are chained in everlasting darkness now are going to be released. And God's going to let them roam the world during a period of time in the tribulation period. Now, if you want to read about that, I'm not going to go there, but in Revelation chapter 9, you can read the references there about this. But these angels are going to be let loose. And when they roam the earth inflicting pain and suffering on people, they're not at that time saying, what a mistake we made. Now we're doing the bidding of the Lord. We're doing a good thing, what God requires us to do. No, they're going to carry out God's function. Uh, God has intended for them to do this. I mean, he's going to t- they're going to torment during the time of, of, the, of, revel- of the tribulation. But then God is going to re-harness those angels. He's going to put them back into hell again. And then he's going to pronounce the everlasting doom upon them. 
They're going to be raised back up for judgment, and they have no power to resist God. Now, Satan, of course, is free right now. He's deluded along with the angels that follow him into, into thinking that eventually they will prevail, but they won't. God is going to judge the demons, and they will confess not only the deity of Christ, that they already know, we've already discussed that, but they will confess him as Lord. They'll confess his lordship because then they realize they have no power against him any longer. Then the Bible teaches that those who are in hell will also confess him as Lord. Now, those people are also defiant, and they're going to be delivered up for judgment. This we read in Revelation chapter 20. You know the scripture beginning in verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And then in verse 14, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so all of those who are under the earth will be brought up for judgment, and they will also confess the lordship of Christ. So they'll worship him. Jesus is the mighty sovereign king. They'll grit and they'll gnash their teeth as they say it. And yet the entire universe will be brought into his submission and will acknowledge at that time, all people will acknowledge that it was never about man. It was always about Christ. The scripture says, in Colossians, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So it's foolish for any preacher or even the worst reprobate not to understand this, for in him we live and move and have our being. He is number one. He's the only one, not just number one. Paul says, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he raised him from the dead. And this is what we're talking about. That's the beginning of Christ's exaltation. He was raised from the dead. And that begins the ascension of the Son of Man. And so he commands repentance from all people, which is in effect an acknowledgement that he is Lord. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is an interesting thing or should be to us that when the whole world acknowledges that Jesus is Lord, then the Father is glorified. That's one of those mysteries of the Trinity. I mean, there, there is no competition. There's no jealousy there. They are three persons in perfect accord, and yet they are one God. Now, let me finish tonight by making the last statement here, and, and I've already said this, so you might even have figured it out, and that is the way to God is not up, but down. Paul and Peter were in perfect agreement on this. Paul said, now here's your example. He lays it all out here. Here is Christ. 
This is what you follow. Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. So he says Christ went down, he went down, he went down, he went down. And so wherefore God hath highly exalted him. Peter said it in a little bit different way. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. They both say the same thing. The way to God is not up, it's down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have together tonight. We thank you for this great portion of Scripture. So much meaning here. We could spend weeks talking about this. But we thank you, Lord, that you are our God. And we do confess you tonight that Jesus is Lord. Bless in this time of invitation. Bless our people, Lord, as we contemplate wonderful time of year that it is that Jesus the Lord came into this world to die for sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.